And now, another episode of Club Life, a podcast docu-series from executive producer Shia LaBeouf about the art of going out dancing and partying. Episode 74, Alaska. New York City party king, the Big Dicker, detailed his first trip to the last frontier in this rare 1993 radio interview, just before his death from erectile IBS. Yeah, 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 I remember this. We all got brought up there by some uh, some promoter, some guy and a girl. I think the girl had big knockers, if I remember. They wrote us a letter. I mean, uh, you know, it's the height of Studio 54. We were really popular, you know. I remember Barbarella was injecting a needle of heroin directly into my penis, or Flacido Domingo, as I like to call it. And Rubel walks right in on us, asks if we want to go to Alaska for some gigs. Steve Rubel died in 1989. The producers would like to point out that through a spokesman, Mr. Rubel's estate fully denies this claim. Yeah, to be honest, I don't remember all the details. We uh, we flew into Anchorage. Uh, they met us at the gate. Uh, it was so cold, the girls couldn't even feel their camel toes. They, they didn't understand our rider. They put a bunch of actual snow in bowls in the dressing room. I said, what the fuck is this? I was asking for powder. Yip, blow, sugar, you know? It was a different place. Yeah, I guess I must have been uh, 23 or so. 1978, uh, maybe? Oh, I got to go to bed. Maybe the only thing I remember the whole weekend, I'm telling you. Suddenly, there I am in the ladies' banyo performing conolingus on an Eskimo girl. Uh, excuse me, Inuit. Uh, you, you know what I mean. It was either that or go back to her igloo. <laughs> You're listening to Bricolage. Truth, comedy, politics. With your host, Lev. On this episode of Bricolage, we'll talk to a fancy chef and I'll rhapsodize about blind people. Plus, as always, trivia with Josh Ellis. But first, Sponsors! This episode of Bricolage is brought to you by Meat and Potatoes, Pittsburgh's first gastropub, emphasizing the traditional yet satisfying staples of the American pantry. Meat and Potatoes in Pittsburgh, PA. Also, by the ubiquity of online gambling advertisements, the ease of gambling from a couch, and the stupidity of the average American man. This will definitely end well. Ha! <laughs> right. Finally, this episode of Bricolage is brought to you by your mother. Call your mother back. Is it so hard? I don't want to bother you. I know you're busy. Just call me back. How the 
fuck do blind people get anywhere? How do they get where they're going without somebody leading them? I can't get anywhere without Google Maps. And these people are using a stick to feel for a textured ridge in the ground so they know when the sidewalk ends. They're basing what are essentially life and death decisions for them on their stereosonic oral instincts. Meanwhile, I get lost if I take the wrong exit out of the subway or the GPS cuts out for 15 seconds. Obviously, most of us can never really know, or at least hope we never know, what it's like to be blind. But for about four hours on Halloween night in 2005, I gained some much-needed perspective. A couple of us had driven up from St. Louis for the University of Wisconsin's annual Halloween party slash controlled riot. Shockingly, my memories are hazy of both that period in my life, college, and this particular night. But to set the scene for you, I was dressed as a nun in a full habit with a sash that read Sister I'm a Jew. So let me fast forward to the end of the night before these blind people wish they were deaf because I'm trying to praise them. But it's the end of the night and I'm on the street and I look to my left, I look to my right, I turn around, I look in front of me and the police are marching in from four sides with guns and shields. Let me be clear, I wasn't outside to disturb the peace or make some grandiose political statement. I wasn't even trying to be a dick. Honestly, I was outside because I was lost and looking for my friend. I didn't know where the heck he was and his girlfriend was freaking out. And The cops shot everyone with pepper spray and I was literally blinded. I'm sure I deserved it. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Plus, maybe the police officer was just Catholic enough to think I needed a reminder of my eternal insignificance. Maybe we could all use one of those reminders every so often. You know what I mean? In fact, consider this podcast a reminder, you don't matter, and obviously neither do I. I lost my glasses, one of my shoes, and my dignity. I must have just been muttering out loud for help, and some poor girl must have taken pity on me. She was wearing a bumblebee costume, and she ended up helping me back to the apartment where we were all staying. And the only reason I know she was in a bumblebee costume is because people have told me this after the fact. I couldn't see her or anything. I was blind. It was only for a very short time, but I was squealing and crying and whining like a syphilitic goat with diarrhea. It was painful. I mean, my eyes felt like the inside of a habanero, and the only way I could manage to see anything was in a sink full of water with my head submerged. But still, I had hope. I had optimism. I knew the eyesight was going to come back. It was temporary. It was fleeting. But from my fragile, privileged, delicate perspective, this was as close to the apocalypse as I'd ever experienced, and all I could do to keep from going in insane was to remind myself that it would all be over soon. Of course, for actual blind people, unless Elon Musk or Google X is working on a cure, this is reality all the time. This is it. You can't see. I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm teasing or belittling blind people. I swear I'm really not. I'm just in disbelief. This is crazy. You guys are crazy. All you do is overcome and just be super inspiring in my three hours as a not even really blind person because I can still put my head underwater not even actually blind in my three hours one of the scariest things that's ever happened to me maybe the scariest and you guys are living with it all the time and just fucking crushing life follow-up question for blind people when you think in your head when you dream when you imagine when you visualize what do you picture are you picturing things or is that 
capability not there. I guess if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, then you wouldn't be able to understand my question. But I have a feeling blind people do and can. Certainly the ones who weren't always blind, who weren't born blind, right? So, like, what do they think of? When a blind person takes hallucinogenic mushrooms, what do they hallucinate? Time for Bricklerize Trivia with Josh Ellis. The question is, what species of animal, known for its superlatives, has the world's largest tongue weighing in at about 6,000 pounds on average? Once again, what species of animal, known for its superlatives, has the world's largest tongue weighing in at roughly 6,000 pounds on average? My guest today has been a professional chef for over a decade, a graduate of New York's Institute of Culinary Education. He has worked under famous chefs like Eric Repair and Top Chef winner Kevin Spraga and headlined a special meal for guests at influential food nonprofit, the James Beard Foundation. He's also stepped out on his own, first serving as co-executive chef at Hertzside, a BYOB restaurant in Collingswood, New Jersey, just outside of Philadelphia, which Philadelphia Inquirer food critic Craig LeBan called a game changer. Hey, and most recently, Recently, as executive chef of the Philadelphia Seafood Institution, the Oyster House. Since the pandemic, he's relocated to Pittsburgh with his wife and two young sons and is now plotting his next move. He's also my wife's brother. Huge, hearty welcome to Bricolage Chef, Aaron Gottesman. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? Oh, man, I am good. Uh, some technical snafus at the front end of this, which really demonstrated just how good I am at podcasting. Well, I guess that wasn't a question. <laughs> <laughs> We're here nonetheless. So, all right, my first question for you. I mean, is there anything? Well, let's start with is, how are you feeling? It's it's a crazy time. Are you okay? Yeah, I mean, all things considered, I'd say so, yeah. Like you mentioned, I I just made the move from Philly to Pittsburgh with my wife, who was six or seven months pregnant at the time. So there was, there was a lot of moving pieces and things going on, but we did it and we're here and we're settled. And I think we're both pretty happy given everything going on out there. Yeah, I bet. Well, I'm going to start from the beginning. What's your first memory about food? That's a great question. I have a few and I, I don't really know the proper chronological order to them, quite honestly. But there are a few. I remember remembering the first time that I ate something spicy. It was a jalapeno popper. <laughs> and my mom told me it wasn't spicy so that I would eat it. And then I ate it, and that wasn't the case. Uh, we were in Vermont during the winter for a ski trip, and we were just sitting at a bar. And I just remember eating it, and it ha remember how spicy it was. There's that. Uh, I remember requesting shrimp scampi as my birthday dinner one year. How old were you? Uh, six, maybe seven. Wow. I remember my dad chicken parm growing up also was one of my favorite things to eat so it's yeah it's just like some random eating experiences growing up that i remember but like i said i don't i don't really know the chronological order as to which one happened when i feel like the like a real professional pretentious chef would have been like i had the beluga caviar it was 1978 <laughs> and you're just like i had a jalapeno papa whatever yeah, i mean 
there definitely are meals that I had later in my life where they were a little bit more extreme and elaborate and fancy that had huge impacts on my life. Well, let's talk about some of those. Yeah, what were those? My 27th birthday, my dad took me to Per Se in New York City, which at the time was considered one of the top restaurants in the whole world. Uh, I had just moved to New York City at the time and... That's when I was really starting to seriously explore becoming a a chef professionally. So that meal was hugely impactful. What was it about sitting at Per Se? I'm sure your waiter makes six figures a year and he or she is very, very good at their job. But like, what was it about sitting there that inspired you or captivated you that you are talking about it all these years later? It was more just like how precise and technical the food was. Like, as you know, I'm sure it's a multi-course tasting menu and the portions are not large. You're not like sitting down and getting a plate of poutine or like chicken parm or shrimp scampi. And it's just, they they highlight ingredients. They, they take ingredients and they get the best ones possible. And there's a lot of thought and technique that goes into the execution of the food. But without knowing that, like sometimes it could just be something, like one of their most famous dishes is oysters and pearls. And it's an oyster cooked with some tapioca pearls. I believe it's just it's really simple, but there's so much technique behind it. And that kind of made me really want to cook fine dining for a long time. But I actually never really went down the path of working at a restaurant quite like that. It sounds like the thing that made you really want to be a chef is fine dining. And the fact that you never walked down that road sounds that that feels surprising, maybe even disappointing. Yeah, I have I have some regrets that I never that I never worked in a restaurant of that caliber. But ultimately, I don't think that I would have had some of the cooking experiences that I ended up having and be where I am right now had I done that. I have a bit of a obsessive personality and not that I didn't take my career seriously. I, I dove into cooking head first. But if I had worked in restaurants like that, I would have ended up all over the world, which would have been incredible. But I would have never met my wife and had my, my two kids. So I, I don't regret not having done it. Okay. One of the nice things about cooking these days is that all of the information is out there. I know that my skills are top level. So if I want to try cooking like those restaurants, I can go buy their cookbook and try executing their recipes because I understand them. I know how to how to do so. And I, I could have definitely learned a lot, but I ultimately know I do not regret it. Okay, let's go back to culinary school for a bit. As I understand it, they make you learn, and my knowledge base is pretty much entirely like getting high and watching shit on YouTube. Um, <laughs> my understanding, though, is that a lot of culinary school is like you have to learn the sauces. Yeah, there's like, there's called the mother sauces. I thought that was breast milk, but it turns out it's a culinary thing. <laughs> <laughs> that That's kind of like old school though, because like cooking like everything else has evolved so much over the years, especially with the internet and just access to stuff out there. Right. Like you didn't need to go to some rare bookstore and find like this old cookbook just to learn about this obscure recipe. It's now accessible to everybody. But that's what you had to do 20 years ago, 30 right. years ago, right. which is why working in the best restaurants in the world was such a big deal then because the only way for you to learn from the best chefs in the world and get their recipes and see their techniques and how they did it was to go work in their restaurants or go work for somebody who had directly worked for them 
them that is now doing something on their own. Like that was, that was how you got your knowledge and information 20, 30, 40 years ago. Now you just go on Instagram or you go by their cookbook or you just look up something online and all of that information is just available. It's, it's out there. In some ways it's easier to be a chef now because all of that information is out there. But on the other hand, it's harder because, you know, it's become a more popular industry and career. And there's so many people that have aspirations and desires to, to do it and be good at it. And the information is available to everyone. So having one of those experiences working at a top restaurant in the world is still extremely valuable, but I don't think it holds as much value as it once did. Huh. So, but you were saying the, the old school kind of cooking technique, the mother sauces, all that stuff, is that not taught in culinary school anymore? Or it still is, but people don't, it's not as like challenging or avant-garde because a lot of people go into culinary school having learned it on YouTube or from the New York Times cooking app or whatever. I think both because I think when you like when someone references the mother sauces and stuff like that, that's like your classical French cooking. And French was like the first hot cuisine. There's high level cooking in every country in the world now. Like the best restaurant in the world could be in Sweden or Mexico. So French cooking and French technique is still very prevalent in other parts of the world. But the French mother sauces, which I couldn't even tell you what they are, honestly. I know some of them, very variations of some of them. But like if you were to ask a chef in Mexico what the mother sauces are, they would say four or five different sauces than you ask if you ask a French chef or if you ask a Japanese chef. Right. So yeah, they're they're still taught in culinary school. I remember being taught them, but I I think that there are what you would call maybe new mother sauces now versus the ones that were kind of the classic ones. What are the mother sauces? Also, I totally picture you in a small room with like metal appliances everywhere getting yelled at by a Gordon Ramsay type figure <laughs> that like the Bordeaux, that's a wine, not a sauce. Isn't one of them, doesn't one of them start with a B? Bechamel. A bechamel, there you go. Like the bechamel's not creamy enough. Like you could stick this to a bottom of a shoe. It should be like cement, God damn it. Goddessman, yeah. did they make you run laps? No. <laughs> I mean, I, I had some pretty awesome instructors in culinary school. Let's see. Mother sauces. Bechamel, velouté, hollandaise, tomato, and espanol. And when was the last time you had to prepare any of the five of those? Um, hollandaise, I would prepare every once in a while when I was working a brunch shift at whatever restaurant. Eggs Benedict has hollandaise on it. Bechamel is kind of the prerequisite to making mac and cheese. So I do that kind of frequently. So what's the hardest thing you had to learn to master in culinary school? Seasoning. What does that mean? Like just putting salt and pepper on meat? Or what, what do you mean? How many classes would be spent on that? It's not really something that a, a teacher can instruct you on. Because it's, it's more than just like the appropriate amount of salt. It's when you season something, how frequently you season. Like if you're making a tomato sauce at home or like pasta, let's say, when you start cooking the onions in the beginning, you season the onions with a little bit of salt. And then maybe you add garlic and some dried oregano and chili flakes and you cook that for a little bit. And then you want to put your tomatoes in. And when you put the tomatoes in, you add salt and you cook it down. And something like that, when you're cooking it, you're concentrating it because anytime you're cooking something, you're essentially cooking the water out of it. So the more that it cooks, the more concentrated it's going to be, the saltier it's going to get. So you kind of want to like season as it's cooking and taste it. And if it needs more salt, maybe a little bit more, but you know, a little bit too much 
salt could be a lot too much when you go to eat something, depending on how much you've seasoned the other items over the course of the cooking process. Huh. And then every every chef has a different level of salt that they like in their food. So it's just it's just something you learn over the years. But it's one of the things that could very easily make food go from being very good to very bad or very mediocre to very good, whether it's seasoned properly or not. Gotcha. Eventually, someone will learn how to cut a potato the right way if you show them how to do it. There's not as much like feel for something like that. It's an actual technical thing. I see. Whereas seasoning is is a little more intricate. The question was, what species of animal, known for its superlatives, has the world's largest tongue, weighing in at about 6,000 pounds on average? The answer, of course, is the blue whale, which also has the world's largest penis. As part of culinary school, was it a lot of like literally being in a kitchen on your feet for 10 hours a day for five days a week? Or are there actual classrooms where like with a blackboard and shit or? It depends on the school you go to. So like the Culinary Institute of America has campuses all over the country. And that's an actual, depending on the program you go into, most of them are, it's an actual four year college experience, if you will. Um, and those have classes where you sit down in a classroom with a blackboard or a whiteboard board and you're taught food costing and menu development and nutritional aspects and all those kinds of things. How to make all your money on liquor. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I did not go to a school like that. I had already kind of like dipped my toes into cooking professionally. So I, I had some knowledge and some experience already cooking. I had never worked in restaurants, but when I was in high school and then when I was in college, before I went to culinary school, I worked in food establishments. So for me, my decision to go to culinary school was twofold. It was for the knowledge that I would gain from actually going to culinary school, but it was also for a lot of the connections and the doors that it would open for me from people that I would meet there. What's the most annoying thing you deal with from the general public as a chef at a restaurant? I suspect brunch is going to be a big part of this, but (laughs) I'm curious, like, because I had Josh Ellis, trivia guru, Josh Ellis came on Bricolage. He's a, you know, a barman uh, and he talked a lot about the things that bug him like his pet peeves as a as a bartender. So I'm curious, like as a chef, um, you've you've worked at some like very very high falutin restaurants as well as some that are a bit more casual. Like, wh- what are the things that annoy you the most as a chef? Honestly, it it varies from restaurant to restaurant. Without naming any of them, your clientele, depending on whether it's one of those more sought after restaurants or smaller restaurants that are harder to get into, or a larger one that are easier to get into. Your clientele varies because of that. And what your guests want and expect varies because of that. One of the most frustrating things for me as a chef is working at a restaurant where, and this might sound weird because, you know, working in the hospitality industry, whether you're a chef or a dishwasher or a server or the owner of a restaurant, you know, your job is to provide the best possible experience to your guests when they walk through the door so that they're happy about it. You know, you're, you're there to provide a service and an experience to them so you should do whatever it takes to make them 
happy. With that being said, as a chef, you create dishes and have ideas and methods and preparations for certain things. And a dish comes together in a specific way because there's different components that highlight each other and play off of each other. So working in some restaurants, the the guests kind of just think that they can have whatever they want. And they would come in and just take an ingredient or a component of a dish out and ask to replace it with something else or not this sauce or not replace this sauce with that sauce or not. I don't like mushrooms. Can I have broccoli instead? And (laughs) I don't like uh, olives. So can you put the puffed wild rice on and like basically would just ask the server to right like it's chipotle basically yeah basically like (laughs) take four components from four different dishes and make their own dish out of what was on the menu and that's frustrating just because it's not chipotle and it's not sweet green and you can't just create your own dish so that that was probably the most frustrating thing to deal with it seems like a power move like it seems like somebody's just like I have the money and this is a nice place. Let me like... A lot of times that was part of it, yeah. And I guess twofold to that question and answer is the server who would allow that person to even ask that question. Instead of instead of squashing that situation at the table, right? they would receive that question or request from their guest and then come back to me and ask me about it. And it's like some of the servers in some restaurants already knew the answer to the question. So they would let the the person ask it and then they wouldn't even come to me to ask me about it they would just you know walk away go do something and then go back to the table and tell them no other servers would come and ask me the question and it's just like you already know what the answer is one of the things that i was the most adamant about once that i ended up giving in to because i felt bad after i kind of heard part of the story it was when i was working at the oyster house it was lunch service and we had three soups that were like classics of the restaurant on the menu New England clam chowder, Manhattan clam chowder, and snapping turtle soup. All terrific, by the way. I've had them all. The Oyster House is one of those restaurants where we kind of did almost anything that a guest would ask of us just because it was a a big family-run restaurant and there had been people eating there for 20, 30 years who've been getting whatever they want whenever they want. Right. They used to have teeth. Now they don't. So they have new orders. Well, well, you kind of just opened the door to where I was going with this one. Oh, wow. What a segue. Okay, great. So it's lunch service and a server comes back in. He says, hey, man, this guy wants some Manhattan chowder, but he can't eat it. Will you blend it for him? And I'm like, I was like, no, I'm not going to put like clams (laughs) in a blender and blend this soup so that it's smooth. Have you ever been to Smoothie King, buddy? Take a walk down the road. This ain't Jamba Juice. I was like, no, that's a little that's a little too far. Like, I'm not going to do that. He was like, all right, fine. He goes back out and he tells the guy, the guy's like, that's fine, whatever. Blah, 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 blah. Someone else at the table pulls the server aside separately a few minutes later away from the table and is like, could you please just do this? The guy I just had like mouth surgery. He's not able to chew anything. And they came back and told me and I was just like, all right, you know what? Let's just make this guy happy. And that kind of gets back to what I was saying is that it's a double-edged sword. Like part of me when people want something specific, I'm like, fuck no, absolutely not. Like I've spent two weeks coming up with this dish to make it 
the way that it is now. And like, this is what I do professionally. This is how it's supposed to be. But then on the other hand, it's my job and my responsibility to do my best to make sure that every person who walks through this door has a good time and is happy with their experience. Right. I feel like that's a that's a nice microcosm for food generally, because we go back to the jalapeno popper versus the beluga caviar. Like <laughs> if it makes you happy in that moment, it might as well be caviar. Yeah, absolutely. Who knows what goes on in somebody's brain, somebody's stomach, like there might be something that, you know, like, I really love White Castle. I genuinely really do. This isn't just like a hypothetical. Like, I really love White Castle. My dad and I used to call it Chateau LeBlanc. I remember going there as a kid <laughs> after Little League games, and we would go, you know, they fucking microwave it. Mm -hmm. And Liz says, so. my wife Vicky, as you know, says that it, it, ta it tastes like fucking old onions. But you know what? Like, to me, it's great. And there are people who, like, are obsessed with White Castle. And, yeah. like, factually, it's despicable. It's disgusting, right? Food is, like, so intricately tied up in these memories and comfort definitely, definitely. and all these concepts and stuff. And I feel like as a chef, you're always kind of like walking that line, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's ultimately, I think, what drew me to cooking was trying to create those memories and experiences for people, whether it be a new one because it's a new flavor or combination or a new dish or something that they'd never had before or putting something in front of them that makes them remember like their bubby's grits when they were growing up in South Carolina. That's the biggest joy, I think, in cooking professionally is watching people's reactions to trying something when it's a good reaction. <laughs> I forget what I was watching or listening to, but I remember seeing an interview with Larry King. You know, somebody asked him, like, Larry, I heard that you always go to this particular restaurant in L.A. and you always get the roast chicken. Like, what the fuck? You're Larry King. You could eat anywhere. You could get, like, the most fancy thing, the nicest thing on the menu, roast chicken. And he said that, like, he thinks that roast chicken is the greatest goddamn thing ever because it's really simple, but like it can be so divine. Yeah. And I always think about that because I also really love roast chicken. Same. <laughs> yeah. Larry King, man. What's something that regular people, by that I mean schmucks like myself, non-chefs, <laughs> what is it that they don't understand about your job or always get wrong or, or assume incorrectly? Like, is there anything you can think of? I don't know. It's um, a good question. Uh, let me kind of think about it. Something you've said to me before is the repetition. Like that people don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the same thing all day, all night, over and over, day in and day out. I think like for me, when I got to the point where I was running restaurants and the executive chef, there's a lot more that I had on my plate, so to say, on a daily basis that wasn't involved with food than there was. Like I rarely ever cooked during a service for the past five, six years of my career. A lot of stuff on the computer, a lot of clipboard holding and walking around and doing inventory and ordering and costing out menus and just a lot more than just physically cooking, but still also having to come up with recipes and teaching cooks and stuff like okay. that. Okay. What's the craziest thing you've ever done in a walk-in? <laughs> uh, smoked a blunt. That's a good answer. I got in a lot of trouble for that, by the way. Because <laughs> <laughs> <Has> there... <laughs> I didn't do it when I was in charge. I did it when I was just a cook somewhere, which was really dumb. Okay, so you don't endorse this behavior. Not if it's not your own restaurant. I see. Here's how I picture it. I picture you, executive chef, standing like in the kitchen. It's like 11 a.m. on Monday or Tuesday. Deliveries are coming in, and the produce guy shows up like straight from from the farm and he and he looks the part and he walks in and he
and he like pulls out like a cauliflower and you like take a look at it and you smell it for like 40 seconds and then you fucking throw it back at him and you're like, you call this fucking cauliflower? <laughs> Has that ever happened? <laughs> um, not with cauliflower, but yes and no. I wasn't really ever a hothead in the kitchen, like whether it was with employees of mine, dishwashers, cooks, sous chefs, or my purveyors. But I, I definitely laid into some of my purveyors at different points if they messed something up. You call this fucking rutabaga? It puts you in a bind, man. <laughs> like, there were a couple times when my fish was supposed to show up and it showed up and it was late. And not only was it late, but it was the wrong thing or it smelled terrible. And it's just like, it just fucks up your whole day, man. It just, it's like a domino of things because one company messes up. So then you have to call another company and then they're rushing to do it for you like really quickly because because it's an emergency and it's just so you basically have to like redo the menu item i mean it depends it depends on if it's something you had in-house already and you were just getting more to get through the day you know maybe maybe i had like 10 pieces of halibut going into the day and i ordered more halibut for that dish and the halibut shows up and it is no good and i call one of my other companies to try and get halibut and they can't do it so i only have 10 for the day so i'm either selling 10 halibut that day and then or I'm going to order another fish, and then when the 10 run out, I'll switch to a different fish. There's so many different variables to the situation. Also, like when you're working in the same city for a long time, you start to become, you start to get to know your purveyors better. And when you go from different restaurant to different restaurant, you tend to bring those people with you. So, like, I would meet somebody that was selling me fish or produce or dry goods or meats at one restaurant. And then if I left to go to another restaurant and work there, I would potentially sign them up to provide for me at the next restaurant. So you kind of become friends with these people over time and develop relationships with them and you get to know them. And a couple of them I became pretty good friends with. And, you know, naturally it's easier to talk shit to and give someone a hard time if you become better friends with them. So there, there were a couple people that when they messed up, I would definitely lay into them. But it was only like 50% serious and the other 50% was me just trying to give them a hard time. All right, let's do a lightning round. Are there any food trends you hate? Avocado toast. Any others? Fine dining. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What's your go-to family meal? Like when I'm working at a restaurant, cooking for my, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Family meal at the restaurant, not with your actual family. Chicken pot pie. What's your go-to just got off work on a Saturday night at 11 o'clock at night meal? Uh, burger. Favorite cuisine? Like regional, like Italian, Chinese, Japanese. Great answer. Thousand percent. Not even close. Japanese and then Thai. Okay. Three favorite dishes and three least favorite dishes. Uh, we're gonna go with we're gonna go with to eat, not to cook, and then we'll do to cook afterwards. So three favorite dishes to eat. It's tough to say dishes because like they're like scallops is an ingredient, not a dish necessarily. You know what I mean? Okay, look, buddy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Whatever happened to the jalapeno popper kid? <laughs> uh, okay, three favorite dishes to cook: grilled cheese, uh, soup, just like a hearty, like clean out the fridge soup of vegetables, and curry. Okay, that's to cook. What about to eat? Grilled cheese, like a smash burger, cheeseburger, and a crudo or a tartare, like a raw fish preparation. Oh, shit. No, I need to change my answers. See, like, 
<laughs> a burger, a bowl of noodles. But I can't really specify. It would be it's either a bowl of pho or ramen. Like I, I kind of love them both equally. It's it's hard to say which one I prefer because it also depends on where you're eating it. So ambiance is important to you. No, not ambiance of the restaurant. Just like context. Yeah, like eating ramen in Japan is an experience unlike any other, which you're familiar with. That's that's a very tough question to answer. What are your most underrated food ingredients? Underrated food ingredients. Like underrated by the general populace, but you love them. Onions. Those are underrated? I think they're polarizing. I think some people hate onions. Like who? The, the Nazis? <laughs> who, who hates onion? People, trust me. <laughs> I know on Top Chef, there's always like one person who's like, little too much raw onion for me. Uh, radishes. Breathe deep. Sigh of relief for you. The lightning <laughs> round has ended. Thank goodness. Well, we've come to the end of our bricolage journey, Aaron. I know you've been uh, you've been wanting to come on the program for so long, and, and this has been a lifelong dream for you. So, you know, I can only imagine how thrilled you must be. Is there anything you'd like to say before I let you go? I'm going to sleep well tonight. Because you've fulfilled your dreams or because you just, like, rubbed one out? Uh, the first one. <laughs> okay, good. Aaron, much love. Thanks so much for coming on The Brick. See you soon, brother. Thanks for having me. The number of days in a fortnight and the number of pounds in a stone, 14 episodes. And they each only take me 18 months to make. Isn't that efficient? Have thoughts on the lightning round or your first food memory? Want to tell me to end the podcast before it reaches the next level of pathetic, empty catharsis? Email podcastbricolage at gmail.com. Seriously, please. This has been Bricolage, created and hosted by Lev. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Theme song, sponsor song, and trivia song written by Alex Schiff. Creative Commons attribution credits are in the text description of each episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe and leave a good review. If you didn't, go blend some Manhattan clam chowder, you toothless fuckstick. <laughs>